Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 64, Questions 2. First off, a correction from episode 60. A couple of you pointed out that I said Austria and Neustria were the two main royal courts in the north of the realm of the Franks. Of course, I meant to say Austrasia and Neustria. And to be clear, Neustria is based around Paris, with Austrasia at Cologne and the Rhine. Anyway, today is the final episode in our end of the century series, and it's all listener questions. I don't anticipate these end of the century tours taking quite as many episodes as this one did. However, as you now know, the appearance of Islam is not only one of the biggest events in world history, but it's also shrouded in mystery. It's also, of course, one of the defining events in the history of the Roman Empire, and so we had to spend some time understanding how it came about and what it meant. We ended our narrative with Justinian II being overthrown by the general Leontius. The emperor was unceremoniously mutilated in the Hippodrome, having his nose and tongue slit. Listener SK asks, how bad an injury was having one's nose cut? Was the whole nose removed, just enough to cause disfigurement, or somewhere in between? Just wondering what the picture in my mind should be. Uh, Obviously, I would first answer, good luck picturing this in your mind, as it's pretty gross. Each case was different, and I'm sure each specific procedure could do more or less damage, depending on the tools used and the skills of the mutilator. In the case of Justinian, it seems like his nose was not cut off, merely cut in such a way that a permanent scar would be left, and similarly that his tongue would be permanently forked. These are nasty punishments, but would in theory not cause him major problems with breathing or eating going forward. I suspect that in some cases the slit nose might become infected and so would need to be removed, and any procedure like that could eventually lead to a more serious infection and eventually death. Listener JB wanted to know more about these merciful 
exiles. Uh, did they retain ownership of their property, or was that forfeit? Were they sponsored by the state, or did they have to find some sort of employment to support themselves? Were they watched, or in some way under a condition of house arrest? We will gain some insight into these questions when we, uh, spoiler alert, revisit Justin Ian II in a few years' time. But the situation was, as you guessed, more like house arrest. Throughout the rest of Byzantine history, we will see many people exiled, and most of them will be sent to monasteries and nunneries. There, they would obviously take up the same duties as the rest of their brethren, while understanding that they could not leave their new residence. For former members of the imperial royal family, the situation was probably uh, like enforced retirement. You may remember that Heraclius' wife Martina and that son Heraclonus were disfigured and exiled to Rhodes when Constans II came to power. I imagine they were sent to live with a wealthy family on the island who would be kind and sensitive to such celebrity guests, while fully understanding that the new arrivals were to remain on the premises. Their property was doubtless forfeit, and we don't really know the fate of many exiled persons. Uh, Heraclonus, for example, was a young man, and it's presumed that he died on roads within a year of his exile. Did he die because of an infection, or was he killed on the order of the new emperor? It may be that he and Martina were sent to live with a family who understood that a convenient accident should be arranged within the next 12 months. But that's purely speculation. As we shall see over the course of Byzantine history, to show mercy by leaving an imperial rival alive was always a risk. But it had to be weighed against the possibility that by murdering the rightful emperor, you might hasten a rebellion against your new regime. Speaking of the imperial visage, listener JF says, It was striking to me how much less detailed the emperor's facial features are on 7th century coins. Is there a reason behind this, or did some coins just turn out better than others? And listener ZB adds, Is this trend due to a decline in the ability to produce finely detailed coins, or simply a further progression of the stylization of imperial portraiture? In other words, did it reflect a decline in material culture, or simply an artistic choice? If you have no idea what these questions refer to, then I guess you're one of the many listeners who haven't visited the history of Byzantium.com or liked the Facebook page. And that's fine. But in case you would like to know, I have put up some examples on this week's post to help you out. As you can see, the traditional portrait of an emperor's face from Augustus onwards was the side-on view of the head. Very familiar to us today in images of Queen Elizabeth or Thomas Jefferson or whoever. But in the coins of Heraclius and his descendants, you can see that Byzantine mints had the emperors facing the camera, as it were, with straight-on portraits of their whole face. So why this change, and why do these coins look less aesthetically pleasing? The first man to make the switch from side-on to fully facing on his coins was actually Licinius, as in the Tetrarch Licinius, who Constantine defeated last to become sole emperor in 324 AD. 
Constantine stuck to the traditional presentation on his coins, but his son Constantius II introduced a three-quarter facing image of his face on some of his coins. I've posted all of these, by the way. The next few emperors returned to the side on view, but in 395, the emperor Arcadius reintroduced the three-quarter facing image for his presentation. This precedent stuck in Constantinople, while in the West, emperors went with the traditional model. The man who made this change permanent was, of course, Justinian, who did away with the three-quarters image and just showed himself completely facing forwards from 539 onwards. And as with many things, his successors followed his lead. Okay, so why does this look less good? As you can probably work out just from looking at the images, it's actually much easier to establish the specific likeness of a person from a side-on view. You can get a better sense of someone's haircut and nose shape from side-on, and you can even add definition to the cheekbones and other features fairly easily. Whereas a person facing you directly suddenly gives you all sorts of depth issues with their nose and their eyes and their mouth. It's very hard to carve accurately all those features onto a flat coin. This leads to the situation where Heraclius has a ridiculous-looking handlebar moustache on some of his nomisma. Over time, coins inevitably become scratched and lose some of their detail due to wear and tear, and the side-on view tends to survive this process more easily than those facing forwards. On the latter, the emperor's noses tend to become blobs, for example, and in the case of Justinian, it's very hard to recognise the image of him on the coin there uh, compared to the familiar portrait in the mosaics of San Vital. I've yet to find a direct explanation for why this change occurred. However, numismatist Philip Grierson comments on these forward-facing portraits, saying that the differing personalities of individual emperors are swallowed up in the majesty of the office they hold. From the 5th century onwards, it seems, even the side-facing coins were apparently less distinctive than they had once been. As the empire slipped into crisis, perhaps those with a shaky hold on power just wanted to convey a sense of continuity and permanence to contrast with the realities of power. It was certainly in Justinian's interests to hide his obscure origins within the veil of imperial portraiture, as listener ZB suggested, uh, rather than allow his peasant features to show through. And of course, Justinian was very keen to promote the position of emperor to the greatest extent, establishing in everyone's mind that he was God's right-hand man, worthy of the most sycophantic prostration. So I think the answer lies somewhere in there. It certainly wasn't a case of a decline in material culture. Byzantine gold coins were made from the same precious metal as anyone else's. Take a look at the coins to see it all for yourself. Listener BB wanted to know more about Roman education and whether it had changed much over the years. For the basic outline of how young people were taught, I will send you back to episode 87 of The History of Rome. In terms of secondary education, the Byzantines still had the same priorities, grammar and rhetoric. 
Learning Homer and his successors and speaking with reference to these classics was still the price of entry into the elite, even if that elite had shrunk after the 7th century. I will have to look into how religious studies, as we might call them, factored in, but educated Byzantines never considered the writers of the Gospels to be in the same league when it came to literature as Homer. You could still find tutors of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, amongst other things, but they were becoming a rarer breed by 700 AD. Listener BB also asked, how would a Byzantine education affect a person living today, or sending our most educated back to them? Which is quite an open question. Uh, I mean, if someone from today went back to Roman times and began to educate them on medical or engineering breakthroughs in the last 2,000 years, then obviously they would be impressed. But that's uh, maybe a topic for a science fiction podcast. And as for a Roman education today, I mean, I'm sure it would create someone who would stand out in terms of public speaking. But apart from that, and perhaps a greater appreciation for the humanities, I'm not sure what else it would have to offer. And uh, again, a different podcaster is needed if you want to discuss the relative merits of different styles of teaching. Listener HMS Rainbow asks, what is the state of fashion in the empire? Is the toga still being worn? Uh, The quick answer is no. Togas might still be worn by high officials and the emperor as part of official regalia, but only on special occasions. For everyday use, the toga was very much out of fashion. I can't speak for the 7th century specifically, but in general the Byzantines gained a reputation for preferring simple flowing clothes to the winding and draping of the toga, and of course the toga revealed far too much flesh for the modesty of a Christian empire. A common item for men was the dalmatica, a long flowing tunic, while women might wear a stola, the long pleated dress that covered them more or less from head to toe. Men might wear trousers under their robes, and women might wear a long cloak over their dresses. As the empire recovers over the coming centuries, the residents of Constantinople will develop a taste for the bright-coloured fabrics of the East, which traders could bring in, and this would make quite an impression on the Crusaders when they arrived in the city. Listener AF asks, when do we start to call Egypt's Christians Copts instead of Monophysites, or did that happen already? The term Copts is an English word adapted from the Latin, adapted from the Arabic, adapted from the Greek. Uh, The original Greek term meant Egyptian, and so in Byzantine times it was probably used to mean the ordinary people of Egypt. Once the Arabs took over, the word came to be applied specifically to the Christian population, so I suppose it's only in the late 600s that the term comes to mean what we think of it today. While we're here, I think it's worth saying that despite the relentless friction it caused, the monophysitism of the Egyptians never did lead to a rebellion against the government in Constantinople. Those with influence always wanted to be part of the empire, and indeed to persuade the orthodox to come round to their way of thinking, while the masses out in the fields don't seem to have concerned themselves with what people in distant parts of the empire believed. Uh, But now, divorced from the empire, the Roman identity of the populace slowly died away. 
without the institutions of the empire, the overriding identity of the Egyptians was their Christian faith and their identification with their own patriarch. So the Coptic identity soon became more important in the face of Muslim rule than their former Roman one. Listener PG says, I understand that the Roman frumentari acted as a secret police in the pagan empire. Was there a Byzantine version? Okay, Uh, as I mentioned recently on the podcast, roles within the Roman and Byzantine bureaucracy were not as fixed as civil servants tend to be in modern Western states. Each emperor would turn to men they trusted or change the specific remit of different officials to try and obtain the results they wanted. The frumentarius was an official charged with collecting wheat from a province and helping to feed the standing armies. Apparently, during the reign of the emperor Hadrian, he asked these officials to report to him any interesting information they might find when visiting their province's farmers. Hadrian was a micromanager of the highest order, and so such an idea sounds eminently plausible. However, the idea that the frumentari were acting like secret police in the way we would think of it today is probably inaccurate. There were perhaps a couple of thousand such officials spread out over the whole Mediterranean world. The chances of them reporting on your seditious remarks the way men did in Soviet or Nazi states was very, very low. And nor did Hadrian probably imagine they would. It seems more likely that the emperor, ahead of his day, was trying to do what Diocletian and Justinian and many others tried to do, which is get as thorough an account of the empire's prosperity as possible so that it could be properly taxed. Most historians of Roman and Byzantine times were men educated in a certain set of values, um, held on to by the the classical aristocracy, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, men with money were always hostile to imperial tax collectors nosing in on their business, so any kind of official like this gets a bad reputation in our written sources. By the Byzantine era, the frumentarius was gone, replaced by the agentes in rebus. Um, These were officially messengers and supervisors of the public post, working for the master of offices. As such, they were often given messages to pass on, sometimes secret messages, uh, and take them safely across the empire. On occasion, they were sent to work in other departments and asked to report back on what they saw. If an emperor was particularly hot on this, then the agentes would quickly become hated figures amongst the officials they were snooping on, or, again, the aristocracy. It's always important to remember that the empire was a huge place and travel was very, very slow. For a secret police of a couple of thousand men to know anything of interest and uh, to act on it um, would be practically impossible. So news of a Roman secret police is uh, very exaggerated by the terms we would understand that today. Listener DK asks, why were most armies smaller than those fielded hundreds of years before? Having listened to the history of Rome and of Byzantium, I see the reasons why the Romans fielded smaller armies. But why does the same hold true for other nations nearby? 
I don't see the barbarians to the north fielding 80,000 man armies like they did in the old days. Most of the armies in the area are much smaller than they were in the past. Was it political? Economic? The effect of the plague? I find it interesting that we have empires that are far more advanced and profitable than those found around 120 BC, yet they have weaker armies. I can't help but think that the Roman Republic would wipe the floor with the Byzantine Empire and the Sassanids, for that matter. It's a very interesting question which touches on a number of different things. The boring bit first. You should be sceptical of any number you hear from ancient history. Most historians writing about these battles were not there. And even if they had been, their ability to count thousands of men spread out as far as the eye can see is debatable. The tendency always seems to be toward exaggeration. And in part, this is because some of these men felt they were writing literary works more than historical ones. To say that a force of 10,000 Romans overcame 30,000 barbarians is to make a point about the valour and skill of those Romans as much as it might be an accurate reflection of the numbers who were actually present. Now, you can't make a generalisation and say that all numbers are exaggerated, but you do need to read good history books where historians will make educated guesses based on lots of evidence and years of experience. Listener DK mentions an army of 80,000 being fielded. I can't off the top of my head remember a battle with a force that large. Uh, the migrating Vandals and Goths were said to have had that many people with them. But that doesn't mean that they were fighting men. Practically speaking, when you get to a number as large as 80,000, a battle would be completely unmanageable and take on a life of its own. Um, no general could maintain any sort of control with numbers that big. And even when we discuss armies of 20,000, uh, doing battle, it's probably fair to assume that 20,000 is an estimate of how many men left their bases to go to war and not actually how many fought in an actual battle. The cavalry, for example, uh, would all have a servant with them in Byzantine times to look after their horses when they were doing something else. Um, every army you know, needs cooks and administrators and standard bearers and scouts and people to lug stuff around. So loads of people who won't actually take the field. Um, so again, it's hard to estimate real numbers and to say with confidence that X number of people fought at a particular battle. But having said all that, listener DK does have a point in that the Byzantine Empire during our story was clearly not capable of conquering the whole of the Mediterranean world the way the Republic was. Justinian's best efforts were undone very quickly by the plague, and even before that, the army was stretched thin. So why did the Romans of an earlier age seem to have more men available to go out conquering? The core of the answer lies in demographics. One of my favourite historians is Colin McEvity, whose atlas I'm constantly recommending. And he and Richard Jones wrote a book in the 1970s called The Atlas of World Population History. Their work is well-sourced, but of course represents nothing more than intelligent guesswork when it comes to the ancient world. However, they claim that between 1000 and 400 BC, the population of Europe doubled from 10 to 20 million. But the growth was unevenly distributed. 
The key developments in agriculture during that era, which allowed populations to grow so fast, were first developed in the Fertile Crescent, Syria and Iraq. Those techniques were most easily exportable to areas with similar climates, such as Greece and then Italy. Between 1000 and 400 BC, the Greek population grew faster than everywhere else in Europe. This explosion helps us understand why Greek colonies sprouted across the Mediterranean and why eventually Alexander of Macedon had the strength to conquer the Persian Empire. As the Greek population began to level off, the Italians grew quickly. And because Italy has much larger and better farmland, the population could stay at home and fight over who was going to be in charge of their new wealth. And we all know how that turned out. Italy is estimated to have had a population of 4 million in 300 BC, and the Romans now had a more organised state than any other on the continent. By AD 1, the empire had dragged 7 million people onto the Italian peninsula out of a total European population of only 31 million. This was a major factor in the Romans being able to repeatedly put out armies to defeat its enemies and eventually conquer all those around them. The peak of the empire's population came around 200 AD at 46 million. But then came the drop. By the 7th century, the population of Europe had fallen by a massive 25% to around 26 million. Repeated cycles of plague must have played a part in this. And according to the Atlas, the Mediterranean countries lost more people than those in the north. If these numbers all sound a little too precise, then the gist of what they're telling us was certainly borne out by the narrative. The story of the empire since the crisis of the 3rd century has been of a struggle to find the money needed to pay for armies large enough to defend the frontiers. It makes sense that demographic contraction is a big part of why. Of course there are other factors at play. Back in the days of the Republic, one could argue that there was more national pride, if I can call it that, in serving in the armies as your ancestors had done, compared to, say, the aristocrats of Byzantium who felt military service was beneath them. And certainly when wealth was more evenly distributed in the days of the Republic, military service was seen as a necessary part of a political career, whereas by the late empire, men with enough wealth would never need to serve in order to maintain their positions. To directly compare armies from different periods, then, is fraught with difficulties, but we should remember that many of those serving in the Republic's large armies were amateurs, until they'd fought for a campaign or two, whereas a Byzantine field army was fully professional, and had far better cavalry than anything the Republic had known. So I think listener DK raises a very real issue to do with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but it's not organisational weakness that brought down the Byzantines. They did the best with the resources at their disposal. The Roman Empire was built on very healthy demographics, and as we've just seen in the 7th century, when you can't call on a fresh army to replace one that's just been destroyed, then your days as an empire are numbered. Listener L.M. comes up with a rather brilliant question. The Byzantines considered themselves both Roman and Christian, so from their perspective, they are the heirs of the people who murdered their own saviour. 
From a theological perspective, this seems awkward at best. Surely this issue occurred to the theology-obsessed Byzantines. How did they reconcile being proud Romans with the fact that their Messiah died at their own hands? Sadly, the answer is less interesting than the question. Instead of finding this fact awkward, Byzantine ideology almost celebrated the fact that their saviour had operated within the Roman Empire. And who was emperor when Jesus was born? Augustus. Today we're quite used to thinking of Christianity as having little to do with the daily operations of our political states, but in the ancient world, divine intervention in politics was assumed. And so it was a natural leap to suggest that Jesus may have come to save us all from our sins, but clearly he'd especially come to convert the Romans. Of course, that conversion didn't take place for another 300 years during the reign of Constantine. So no Byzantines were going to feel too guilty about the actions of their pagan ancestors. And I think I made this analogy once before, but I don't think that many Byzantines felt an emotional connection to their pre-Constantinople ancestry in perhaps the same way that Americans today might feel less connection to their ancestors who lived in other parts of the world before migrating to the States. Another very clever question comes from listener MS, who says, It seems like from Crassus's day onward, a strong Persian neighbour in the east was a given. How did the Romans feel seeing the Persians disappear after the Arab invasions? Were they shocked, or was it a welcome change? Or did they think that this was a temporary state of affairs? Sadly, we'll never know how contemporary Byzantines felt exactly. Nicephorus and Theophanes are both writing in the 800s, when the Persian Empire's disappearance had long been confirmed as permanent. It seems like in the initial months of the Arab invasions, Heraclius tried to keep the lines of communication to Persia open, but soon that was impossible. It's difficult to tell how long it took for the Romans to fully accept that this was the new status quo. Certainly 20 years after the initial invasions, young men would be joining the army who'd never heard of a Sassanid attack. I'm sure that someone somewhere in Anatolia had the thought that listener MS is driving at. Man, things were easier when the Persians were around. Sure, they sacked some cities and were very tough opponents, but at least we knew how to deal with them. Pick your cliché from better the devil you know or you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Sure enough, someone thought it on the ground, but it doesn't make its way into the official record. You won't be surprised to hear that at the official level, the Byzantines eventually concluded that the Persians being swept away was just another act of the Christian god. It was hardly surprising in the grand scheme of things because the Sassanids were Zoroastrian fire worshippers, it makes more sense for God to transfer his favour to the nominally God-fearing Arabs. The only direct quote I found on this issue comes not from a Roman, but from a Christian in Iraq. I've actually quoted him before. He was the Nestorian patriarch, Isoyab III. He became patriarch in 650 and wrote of his struggles to keep his community together and secure concessions from the new Arab governors. He reports that one of his bishops confided to him privately how sad he was to see the Sassanids gone. Whether Isoyab actually shared that sentiment, we'll never know. 
In his writings, he understandably records that he dismissed the bishop's concerns, pointing out that God was always going to deal with the pagans in this manner, and so it was useless to waste emotion on an inevitability. Listener T asks whether the empire would have collapsed to the same degree if Heraclius, or even Phocus before him, had successfully sued for peace with the Persians. Who am I to speculate, and I won't waste your time with a long alternate history, but my short answer would be that it was probably too late by then. The endless series of Roman-Persian wars across our podcast were usually about trying to gain domestic political legitimacy, rather than serious conquest. Remember Kavad and Kusro coming to grab some cash and quick glory? Or Justin II foolishly trying to make himself look as grand as Justinian? Even the final war was really an attempt by Kusro II to overcome the fact that he'd needed Maurice to put him on the throne. So if Phocus or Heraclius had made peace after a series of defeats, the chances are that they would have restarted the war as soon as they felt strong enough to do so. To not would almost certainly have brought usurpation attempts from ambitious rivals. Of course, we all know about the butterfly effect, so a different war would almost certainly lead to different results. But if I were looking for a fork in the road, historically... I would still go back to Justin II, needlessly provoking the war which led to all of this. I think once Maurice was murdered, a ruinous war was coming one way or another. But that's just me. Our final question of the century comes from listener AX, who asks, What, in your opinion, marks the turning point between late antiquity and the Middle Ages? The turning point in my mind is the 630s, since they seem to have marked a dramatic end to the traditional geopolitical balance between Rome and Persia. What are your thoughts? Another big question. Undoubtedly, our story changes completely in the 630s. But what about those in Western Europe? Their story changed more dramatically in the mid-400s. Or what about the rest of the world? Some have argued that even though the 630s mark a dramatic political change, the late antique lifestyle of the caliphate's new provinces actually continued under Arab rule for some time to come. Whenever you define a historical period, you are being arbitrary. We look back and define what we think of as key turning points based on how history has played out. So, rather than offer my own fumbling answer to that specific question, may I offer you an answer to a slightly different one? This comes from Colin McEverdy's Atlas of Ancient History. Yes, I'm banging on about that again. Colin McEverdy produced four historical atlases for European history, and he divided them into ancient, medieval, modern, and recent. He had to draw a line between ancient and medieval, and chose for his arbitrary date the year 362 AD. Not a typical choice, but those with great memories will note that the emperor at the time was Julian the Apostate, the man who tried to stop Christianity in its growth around the empire and return to paganism. Here is the justification. In retrospect, it's easy enough to see that the cults Julian attempted to rejuvenate were dead already. But at the time when the temples of old Rome were still as much a part of its life as its new churches, 
who can have been so sure of the outcome? The pagan establishment must have seemed very strong. We know now that the future belonged to the counts, the bishops, and the barbarians, and not the senators, the old priesthood, and the traditional supporters of the Roman state. But to contemporary eyes, for one last moment, all will have seemed to stand equally tall. It may not be an argument that convinces you, but it's one of the more interesting I've read. And that's what I've tried to do across this 7th century tour, try to bring you the best scholarship that I've studied. I hope it's been illuminating. That's it for the end of the century episodes. I should say that I have filed some other questions on technology, slavery, China, and citizenship to look into for future episodes. Next time, though, we return to Constantinople for 20 years of crisis as the mutilation of Justinian II turns out not to be the smooth regime change that some hoped it would be. All the while, Abdel Malik and his successors lick their lips at the possibility that Byzantine infighting will finally hand them the prize of New Rome. Do you know how large the cisterns were in Constantinople? According to historian Mark Witow, the cistern of Aspar was big enough for a whole village with its own soccer field to exist in until modern Turkish developers built a shopping mall there. Well, for the History of Byzantium podcast, the giant cisterns are very real and very needed. Defenders on the wall will need drinking water, should we become besieged. And you know what repairs cracks in the walls of a cistern? Yes, that's right. How did you know? iTunes reviews. Have you reviewed the podcast yet? It only takes one click. Save water and review the podcast. Thanks.